Thank you for the lovely music, as always. I, I appreciate that. And thank you for starting up with us out with prayer. I'm actually going, let's pray again. <laughs> let's pray again. Oh, Father God, you are so worthy, just like the girls sang. You are so worthy of our praise. Right now, our hearts are so filled. They're filled with a lot of anxiety. They're filled with, filled with a lot of concern. We want to take the time this morning to pray for our city and pray that you might show mercy on our city. We think of all the things and developments and things that have taken place uh, during the past week, and we would just come together and, and, and ask for mercy and ask that you and your grace and your kindness might be put on display as our city endures all these things. We wanna pray for our, our country and, and upcoming elections. We pray for the same thing, that you might have mercy on this country and that somehow your name might be made great even through the things that are take, taking place in our city and country. I also wanna pray for Kristen, uh, one of our mentors. Her husband at this very time is going through very serious, intense surgery, and we pray that your hand might be upon the surgeon and that things may go easily and quickly and that healing can come to his body. And now, Father, we pray for our lesson that we can hear from you as we study your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, am I okay? Okay, sorry. Okay. Super Bowl 25 was played on January 27th, 1991 just 10 days after the first Gulf War, after the start of the first Gulf War. It is not really remembered so much for the score or the plays as it is for what happened before the game. That was the year that Whitney Houston sang the national anthem. It turns out that what she sang was actually pre-recorded. That wasn't unusual. That's how they did things. But what was unusual was Houston's rendition was going to be a little different. The Star Spangled Banner is written in 3-4 time, and she wanted to slow it down to 4-4 time, which was going to make it even more difficult technically. It's said that the NFL had some concerns but that a musical arrangement was put together. As the story goes, Whitney Houston supposedly went into the studio, she listened to the arrangement once on a headset, and then she sang it and nailed it in one take. On the day of the game, they asked the people to stand. The field was lined with servicemen and they're holding flags and, and you had your players, they were standing with their hands over their hearts. Every seat had been given a little mini flag. So of course everybody was waving those flags. She was wearing a sporty white tracksuit. Now if you remember, she had the figure of a swimsuit model, but that was not to be on display that day. Behind her, you could see the Florida Orchestra dressed in its finery. She takes the microphone and she begins to sing and it is mesmerizing. She's very regal, she's very poised. She hits all those high notes with just the power that she was famous for. And, and when she quits singing, uh, jets start flying over the stadium. People erupt into thunderous applause. It is one of the most patriotic, 
one of the most majestic scenes. In, in my mind, it is one of our country's finest hours. I went back, by the way, and watched the YouTube of this and literally spent the next two weeks humming the Star Spangled Banner. I couldn't get it out of my head. Six months earlier, on July 25, 1990, the comedian and actress Roseanne Barr, she sang the national anthem. She too wore white. She had a big, white, sloppy, oversized white shirt. The occasion wasn't as fancy. She was to sing at a San Diego baseball game. She took the microphone and began to sing. It was not mesmerizing. It was off key and sounded like screeching. One writer described it as the sound of a fork going across a plate. <laughs> if you've ever seen one of those American Idol editions, auditions where the person is singing just really bad and you're listening to it and you're thinking, oh honey, do, do you hear yourself? Do you realize how bad you are? And you don't know whether if that person, if it's a joke or somebody's lost a bet, well, that's what <laughs> it was like. At the time, her TV show was the highest rated sitcom. She was a comedian. People watched her and they didn't know whether to take her seriously. She would go on to explain that four notes into the song, she realized she had started too high and that she was in trouble. And she said she was very nervous about the whole thing. Now, the problem is that when she got to those big, high, powerful notes, she held it out and she screeched. And then when she was finished, she grabbed her crotch, spit on the grass, and then walked off the field. People were livid. It said that she had to be put on a private plane and taken to her home for her own safety. She ended up going viral before there was such a thing. The story was reported on news stations all over the world. She would go on to say that she could not go out in public for a year where someone did not spit on her or throw something at her. There were t-shirts made with her face, with a bullseye, with her face on it. She said her children needed to have police protection. Now, why was that? Why, why all the outrage? Well, because at the time, people found her behavior to be disrespectful of the national anthem. They found her to be disrespectful and dishonoring of the national anthem. Let me give you a different and more current example, probably not the one that you're thinking of. July. 2015, Ariana Grande, the beautiful little young singer, she goes into a California bakery with her boyfriend and some friends. She is caught on camera, standing in front of a tray of iced donuts that are for sale. When the clerk leaves the room, she is caught leaning in and licking them. Okay, when the clerk comes back, she cusses and says, I hate America. She too went viral. She would go on to issue an explanation saying that she loved America, but that she was frustrated with danger dangerous American eating habits and childhood obesity. In that first apology statement, 
She never mentions anything about the donut licking, which by even today's standards would be considered irreverent, disrespectful behavior. What does it mean to be honorable, to be reverent, to be respectful? What would that look like in 2016? What difference would it make? And why is it a woman's issue? Those are some of the questions that we want to consider this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Titus chapter 2, to our, to our focus passage. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Says, says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. This morning, our focus is going to be on that phrase, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. This past week, your homework had been on the design element of honor and reverence. Now, before we get into all that, we want to notice something. We want to notice the way that Paul gives the general instruction in verse 1 for sound doctrine, and then he turns and begins to give gender-specific instruction in verse 2. He gives the men a list, he gives the women a list. Now, why does he do that? because everything that he mentions in those two verses should be done by both sexes. So why differentiate? Why, why the distinction? Well, this is review from last week, but we're gonna make it our first point. Gender and marriage exist to tell the incredible story of Jesus. The two different genders are to shine the spotlight on the gospel from different angles. And if you've been coming to abide for any length of time, this is a review. Now, in the Bible, we see relationship. We see the relationship between Jesus and the Father. We see the relationship between Jesus and his church. And as women, we have a very distinct role in reflecting that. Now, I have a visual of this on your, uh, on your paper, and it's from your book, it, it explains that as women, we are to reflect the part of the bride, which is the church, as it relates to Jesus. And also we are to reflect the part of Jesus as he reflects to the Father. Now, everything about the relationship between Jesus and the Father is characterized by reverence. And everything about the relationship between the church and Jesus is to be characterized by reverence. So that means... That reverence is going to be critical, critical, critical to our womanhood. All right, now, also, let's look on to verse 3. It says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Older women. What does he mean by that? Older. Well, the Greek word for older women is not used anywhere else in the Bible, so it's not like we can do any cross-references on this. However, look up at verse 2, where it uses the term older men. That is a term that Paul used to describe himself when he was in his 60s, describing chronological age. So, 
when Paul uses the expression older women, he is probably referring to women that are not of, that are past the age of childbearing and raising children. All right, we might call that middle-aged or menopausal. And uh, Paul seems to be saying that women, the older women in your church, those women that are not in the midst of having babies and raising children, that, that age bracket, you are to be known for your reverential behavior. You are to be characterized by your reverential behavior. Now, is he suggesting that reverence is not something that the younger women need to be concerned about? Or is he suggesting that this isn't really something you young girls can handle yet or can acquire yet? Can no, no, not at all. And that brings us back, that brings us to our next point from the book, number two. Paul anticipated that chronological maturity would be accompanied by spiritual growth and maturity. Okay, the fact is, as you are growing chronologically, you should also be growing spiritually. What if I were to ask you how long you've been a Christian? How would that stack up to your spiritual maturity? Are you growing? All right, next we want to see that that word for behavior is the Greek word katastema. And as the book, it described a much broader word than our English version for behavior. It meant your actions, your attitude, your style, your approach, your demeanor. It's your thoughts. It's your emotions. It's the outward expression of the inner character. It's the whole package. And Paul is saying when it comes to the older women in the church, their catastema is to be reverent. Okay, the implication is, and, and we're going to see this particularly in our next semester, that faith is refined and it is tested as you go through life. And the older women, they should be able to display some real evidence of that. While the younger women, you may be in the midst of it. It may be something yet in your future. Okay, um, this is how the authors put it. They said, reverence is the aim of younger women too. It's just that sometimes it takes a while to get there. You may not have the life experience yet. All right, there's something else that we want to see. And here's our next point. There is to be interaction between the various ages of women within the church family. If older women are to be teaching younger women, then we are to be hanging out with women of different ages. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being in a Sunday school class with women your own age, but we're in deep trouble if we are not crossing over and interacting with the other generations of women in the church. In fact, we're not just in deep trouble, we're in disobedience. Okay? Now, I also want to say that at this point, some teach this differently. They say that when you see this verse and it talks about older women, that they will teach it is impossible to designate a certain age requirement for what it means to be older. And the idea is that you're always older than someone and that you're always younger than someone. And the reason that's significant is because at the end of the verse where it says they are to teach what is good. And the idea here is that the older, if you're older than someone chronologically or spiritually, you're to be teaching the younger, okay? 
Listen to what Susan Hunt writes. No man understands experientially how it feels to be a wife, to have a menstrual cycle, to have a baby, or to go through menopause. Paul was smart enough to know that women need women to train them to know how to apply God's word to areas of their lives that are uniquely feminine. Let's make that our next point. Number four, women need women to train them how to apply God's word to areas of our lives that are uniquely feminine. Allow me to be blunt. There are girls and women in the church that need you. Whether it's the generation that's coming up behind you, maybe it's a peer that's newer in her faith. She needs you to help her understand what biblical womanhood looks like. Okay, I want us to look at the end of verse 3, and I'm going to switch to the NAS for this verse. End of verse 3 says, teaching what is good. Number Verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that, now here's why, the word of God will not be dishonored. We're to be teaching younger women, whether chronologically or spiritually, we're to be teaching them what biblical womanhood looks like so that the word of God will not be dishonored. In other words, so that the word of God will be honored, so that it will be made beautiful, so that it will be adorned. And I don't want us to miss this. Paul is pointing out here that we honor his word by being honorable women. Okay, here's our next point. Paul, number five, Paul identified reverence as a critical virtue for women of every era. All right, now we want to talk about what do we mean by reverence. So let's define that. <clears throat> the book explained the Greek word reverence, reverent, is a compound word. First part, and I have this on your paper, it means that which is holy or sacred, and it's coming from the word temple, meaning temple. All right, the second part meant that which is fitting or proper. So the basic idea, you put that all together, and you have conduct appropriate a temple. Paul said that the older women were to have conduct appropriate to the temple. They were to be priest-like. In other words, they were to be women that could enter into the presence of God. Pe women that could have access to God. Women that could offer up prayers. Women that could offer up worship. They were to be women that could do all the things that a priest used to do. They were to be reverent. All right, now, reverence and honor, when you study those in the Bible, they're always closely related to fear. Okay, so let's uh, make that a point. Number six, reverence, honor, and fear are closely related concepts. And when I say fear, I mean the fear of God. Okay? And uh, the book gave us a great definition for that, and I have that on your um, papers as well. <clears throat> I want to read it. The basic meaning of the fear of God is reverential awe. The fear of God is a personal, jaw-dropping awareness of God's majestic greatness and holiness, reflected in a commitment to honor him by turning from sin and faithfully obeying his word. All right, here's our next point. It's from the book as well. Number seven, the Bible declares that God is the highest ranking being 
in the entire universe, and as such, we owe him deference and reverence. Deference and reverence. The book talked about our obedience being a spiritual curtsy. We are the lesser being, and we acknowledge that with our obedience. Okay, now I want you to notice that the definition of the fear of God, it says that your awareness of the majesty and greatness of God is going to be reflected in your attitude and behavior. Those things are linked. How you see God affects the way you behave. Now I want you to see this. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 20, I'm going to start at verse 1. From there, <clears throat> Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his and Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. If you're familiar with um, the account in Genesis, Abraham, Abraham and his wife, they had, a, a, had an arrangement when they were traveling. She was very beautiful, and so she was to tell people that she was Abraham's sister, which was technically true because she was his half-sister. And, uh, and apparently, that way, if anyone was interested in having Sarah, instead of killing Abraham, they would send for him and they would try to broker a deal. Now, um, because he was uh, her brother. Now, he likely thought he could have better control of the situation like this, but it, uh, unfortunately, when a king wants your sister, he just takes her. He doesn't have to go through the brother. So that's what happens. And that night, or but at that time, God comes to the king in a dream, and he says to him, you're a dead man because that woman is married. All right, now, let's pick up in verse 9. Verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought, now watch, there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham said, there is no fear of God in this place. The king said to him, what did you see? And Abraham is basically saying, listen, I looked around at the stuff that was going on and I said to myself, there is no fear of God in this place. Have you ever traveled to some place like that? Where you looked around and you thought, there is no fear of God in this place. Maybe you've watched TV and watched the news and watched the things that people do and thought to yourself, have they no fear of God? You see, Abraham understood something. He knew that when the people fear God, the people are restrained. Evil is restrained. When people lose the fear of God, then lawlessness abounds. And you have every man doing what is right in his own eyes. The people, and why is that? Because a reverence for God affects behavior. It restrains us. And it leads us to our next point. 
Number eight, a reverence for God impacts how we relate to people. A respect for God is going to translate into respect for people. A respect for God is going to translate into treating others with dignity and respect, no matter their color or their culture or their religious beliefs or their political affiliations. Do you know when the videos of Ariana Grande licking those donuts reviewed, one of the things that most bothered her fans was the way she treated the clerk. They went to Twitter and they wanted to know why did you have to be so rude to the clerk? They didn't, they didn't care about the donuts, but they wanted to know why were you so mean to the girl that was waiting on you? Well, we can speculate. Because if you have an irreverent disposition toward God, if you have a big view of yourself and a small view of God, it is going to impact the way you treat and relate to other people. Now, in the Titus passage, after Paul gives us the directive for the older women to be reverential in behavior, he then gives some examples of its opposite. And he mentions two in particular. He says we are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. And I have the Greek meaning of that on your papers as well. Slanderers is the word diabolos. Dia meaning through, balo meaning throw. The book defined it, also on your papers. Slander is a report meant to do harm to the good name and reputation of another. All right, sometimes your Bibles will translate that word devil. All right, in case, in fact, 34 times it is used in the New Testament for the name of Satan and with good reason because it pictures for us what Satan does. He throws things at people. He throws things through so it divides and it wrecks and it destroys. You see, that's what slander does. That's what slander always does. It wrecks it divides, it destroys. And Paul is saying, ladies, you are to have nothing to do with this. You are to be priest-like in your behavior, not Satan-like. You see, when someone, when we slander someone, we want that person to look bad and we want ourselves to look good because at the very root of slander is self-promotion, which is what Satan is all about. Let me ask you, how seriously do you take slander? Because Paul says it's Satan-like. I found this lesson very convicting because I realized how easily slander comes off my tongue. And a lot of times I think it's because I don't call it slander. I give it nicer names. But the truth is that if I am throwing something against someone so that it divides, so that it destroys, if I'm saying something with the intent to do harm to the name and the good reputation of another, Paul says that is slander. It's not temple appropriate behavior. It's not fitting for the temple. It's fitting for Satan. Now, here's our next point, number nine. Slander is irreverent behavior and has at its root self-promotion. Now take a good look at that definition. 
<clears throat> because this is something you're going to be teaching your children. You're going to have this conversation over and over again, and especially with your daughters. All right, this is one of those gender-specific instructions. The reality is your sons are going to be far more inclined to throw things physically at people. <laughs> but your daughters, oh, they throw things verbally. We're more verbal as a gender. We're more relational. This is probably going to be a more difficult temptation for the girls in your family than the boys. And you would be wise to equip them for that. All right, so women are not to be slanderers. We were also told not to be given over to much wine. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't drink at all. I can cross this off my list. Maybe. Maybe not. Paul may have had more in mind here than just drinking too much wine. The authors pointed out drinking in excess was symptomatic of an attitude of entitlement. Here's our next point. The root problem of drinking wine in excess is that of self-gratification and self-indulgence. That would suggest that the application of this verse is going to be broader. Allow me a more modern update. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves too much Facebook or slaves too much Netflix or slaves too much shopping or obsessing over our appearance. I shared with you last semester <clears throat> when we did the lesson on fasting how I went on my fast from sweet tea and it was very eye-opening. I became painfully aware of my desire for instant self-gratification and um, indulgence, particularly that which I was finding through sweet tea and actually food in general. So while I was not addicted to much wine, I realized I was addicted to sweet tea. Now I used to rationalize that and say it's no big deal because I'm not getting tipsy, but I, 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 was, I was missing the point. Because if that addiction is symptomatic of my desire to self-gratify and to self-indulge, then Paul says it's a problem. It's not temple appropriate. It wouldn't be appropriate for the priest in the temple, so it's not appropriate for you. Here's our next point, number 11. <clears throat> self-promotion, self-gratification, and self-indulgence are the polar opposites of an attitude of reverence. We live in a society that encourages all three of those. But they're not temple appropriate. Jean Twenge, she's written extensively about narcissism in our country. And she contends that narcissism is at an epidemic proportion. She maintains that blogs and social media actually encourage constant self-promotion by allowing people to broadcast details of their lives. Now, why is that a problem? Because we have been created to put the spotlight on God. Remember how we have defined glorify? We've said it's shining the spotlight 
on God. You have been created in the image of God to image God and put the spotlight on him. Self-promotion is the opposite of that. We've been created. We are to have honorable behavior that puts the spotlight on him. And so to self-promote is the opposite. It is to honor ourselves. It is put to, to put the spotlight on ourselves. Now, Self-promotion is something we do naturally, at least I do. But this generation, you have the enticement to do that in greater ways than previous generations have ever had to experience. Do you know when, I, when my kids were little and babies, there was no such thing as a selfie. There was no such thing as a selfie stick. There was no such thing as a me-former. Do you know what that is? Have you ever heard of that term? It, it was new to me. It apparently was coined by researchers at Rutgers University who used the term to label social media users who post updates about their everyday actions, feelings, emotions, and thoughts. Their study estimated that 80% of Twitter users are me-formers. Ladies, let me ask you, do you have a Twitter account? Do you have a Facebook account? Do you have an Instagram account? And are you a part of the 80%? Are you a me-former? You see, because as Christian women, we are to be characterized as reverent. We are to be characterized as, as putting God on display. We are to be characterized as promoting God, not self-promoting me-formers. Now, am I saying that you can't have a Facebook, you shouldn't have a Facebook account, and that you shouldn't be posting pictures and information about yourself? This is what I'm saying. I'm saying that self-promotion, self-indulgence, self-gratification, they are the opposites of reverence. They are irreverent behavior. <clears throat> Here's how the authors explained it. Irreverence is failing to value something of great worth. It is making little of something we should make much of, whether we make more of our opinions and desires than we make of the opinions and desires of Christ. We are guilty of irreverence. Listen, it is as though we deface and desecrate the memory of his sacrifice. Roseanne Barr's singing of the Star Spangled Banner is generally labeled the most disrespectful version of the singing ever. When she sang it, the country was right on the verge of the first Gulf War. She sang it in San Diego, which is a Navy town. The song conjures up images of our military and our servicemen and our first responders, those people that lay down their lives and, and sacrifice with their very lives so that we can be safe and so that our country can be great. And the people were disgusted because when she disrespected the song, it was viewed as disrespecting the sacrifice. She was desecrating, she was defacing the memory of all those sacrifices. Now the authors suggest it is the same thing when we are irreverent and disrespectful in our behavior. When our behavior is dishonorable, when we make little of God, we make little of the sacrifice. And um, this morning, I want to be clear about what the sacrifice is. I realize in a room this size, that may need explaining. Jesus Christ laid down his life and was the sacrifice 
on behalf of your sin. He laid down his life so that we might be free. He left heaven. He became a man. He came to earth and lived a perfect life. And then because of our sin, he laid down his life and died on a cross. The Bible says he became sin for us and took on the punishment that we deserved by dying on the cross. He died, he was buried, and then on the third day, because his death satisfied the wrath of God, God raised him from the dead. And now he sits at the right hand of God to intercede on our behalf. Ladies, Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. Here's our next point. When we do not honor God with our lives, we desecrate the memory of the sacrifice. All right, I want us to close with one last verse. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 16. Keep in mind, Paul is writing this to believers. And he says to them, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, we've just described reverence as behavior appropriate for a temple. Now, this side of the cross, we don't just visit the temple once a week. We are the temple. If you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. We are the temple. Now, do you remember last week when we talked about discernment? We talked about the many decisions that you make over the course of a life that are not clearly spelled out in Scripture. For instance, um, should I allow my child to play soccer? At what age should I give my son a phone? Should we spend the money to put in uh, new granite countertops? Last week we asked the question, why do we need to use the scripture for those, those kind of decisions that seem to be completely neutral and have no spiritual uh, value with? Why do we need to use the Bible to make decisions about the secular? This is why. This is why. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. Now there is no secular, there is no distinction between the secular and the sacred. This is why whether you are driving the kids to the school or you are doing your grocery shopping or you're changing a diaper, we're to be reverent and do it as, in, do it as if we are in the presence of God. Here's our final point. Number 13, we must be reverent and remember we are always engaged in sacred things. Let's pray. Lord, our city, our world needs reverent women. Help us to be reverent. Help us to be respectful. Help us to honor the word of God by honoring you in our behavior, in the way we relate and treat others so that the 
so that the gospel can be put on display. Help us to be faithful to do this. Uh, Show us. Help us to be convicted when we slander or when we self-indulge and self-gratify. And in the name of Jesus, we pray and ask all these things. Amen.